Our second reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I, and I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through your word, through their word, that they may be all, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even though as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may be perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. The word of the Lord. In John 17, Jesus prays for his disciples. He prays, according to verse 22, that they may be one, that all believers may be one, even as we are one. The Father and the Son are one. And yet, here we are 2,000 years after Jesus and more than 30,000 denominations later. I, I was looking up some of the names of denominations out there. It's amazing the number of denominations that are denominations that clearly developed so that one could separate itself from another. You know, the first church of and the second church of the ones who believe this and the ones who believe that. It goes back to the earliest church, of course, as you see some of the divides and pressure that's put on the Christians, even in, those, in the book of Acts or recorded in Galatians, and some of the challenges that entered early, early on. So when Jesus says, I pray that you would be one even as the Father and the Son are one, we have to ask, how in the world can this possibly be? How could we be one? And what would it look like if we did? 
But I think if we were going to see the, the problems that the church has had historically, we need to see the problems that humans have had historically. Look, when it comes down to it, we're made for relationships. The Lord saw Adam in the garden and saw that he was alone, and it was not good for him to be alone. God created them male and female. Male and female, he created them. He tells them to fill the earth, to multiply. God created us to be in relationship with one another, men and women and children, expanding throughout the universe. But of course, as you read the Genesis account, sin enters in. The first thing that happens with that sin is that the relationship with God is broken. But once the relationship with God is broken, the relationship with one another is going to be broken. And so a question that I want to answer at at the beginning here is, how does our relational brokenness play out? Well, there's lots of ways we could describe this, and if I had studied this more thoroughly in my life, I probably could go even further, further, but I'm going to point out three, three ways I see. We can either be players, the played, or those who avoid playing at all. You can see the way our relational brokenness plays out in how we play the game of relationships. Some of us are players. We're the users. We're the ones who ask this question of others. Do you make me happy? Do you help me? Do you increase my standing? This was something that I was very good at. I'm hoping that I'm getting over it. But there's at least one or two people in this room who know me from years ago who could tell you that I was the sort of person who would not remember their name. Why not? Well, maybe it's because I'm not good at remembering names, or maybe... It's because I was a user. I was the sort of person who was always wondering, do I need to know this person or not? Is there something I can get from them? Something I can enjoy? Or some way in which this person will help me to advance and get where I want to go? This sort of mentality says that you are a commodity for me. And in this mentality our relational connection is self-focused and self-consumed. Kind of on the opposite side of this, from the player, the user, is the played, the used. Those are those of us in the room who are always asking the question, will you accept me? Will you affirm me? Will you love me? Anxious to please and also easily hurt. And these sorts of people oftentimes make themselves a commodity. I'm a commodity for you so that I can feel loved and affirmed. On the outside, this sort of way of thinking looks others-focused, but deep down in, it's self-consumed as well. Because while I'm willing to surrender myself for you, it's really because I need affirmation and acceptance. I'm still using you to get what I want. And then, of course, there's the kind of people who won't play the game at all, the ones who avoid getting on the field. I'm fine. I'm good just as I am. And we are always asking the question of any circle of friends, any group, can I come and go easily, and do I really have to get involved with people? Often, people who won't play the game of relationships are those who have been wounded the most. 
You've dealt with betrayal, with a spouse who has abandoned you. You've dealt with death and loss and know how much it hurts to lose somebody so close to you. And so it's only natural to avoid getting into deeper relationships. I'm afraid to give or receive from you. I have to guard my heart. This self-protective way of thinking is also self-consumed. Now look, maybe you've found other ways to be relationally destructive. My guess is all of us have patterns that we fall into. Tendencies where we are looking at other people and guarding or using, trying to get what we need. The reality is all of us are very aware of this. Relationships are always breaking down. And of course, the best advice our culture can give us, look at film and fiction or eHarmony, is find your match. You've got to find your soulmate. Find the person who will say to you, you complete me. And of course, if after a while they're no longer completing you, go find your true soulmate. That person must not have been it. But in this search for the perfect match, we're also overlooking the other six billion people in the world that God has placed us in community with. We are looking for love and we're looking for value. But very often we treat others as either a commodity or a threat to us achieving the love and value we're after. And deep down in, it's hard to argue with this, nearly every religion has pointed to it, we are self-focused and self-concerned. We're made for relationships, but our selfishness gets in the way. And I think, and our passage here seems to point to, at the root of our relationship-destroying selfishness is a glory problem. A glory problem. Let's look at what Jesus says and see how this plays out. Jesus is praying in John 17, his high priestly prayer. This is the final prayer, all of John 17, before he is going to die. Right after this prayer, they head out to Gethsemane. That night, he is, he is arrested. His friends abandon and betray him. That next morning, he is taken to the cross. This is his final words, if you would, to his disciples as he is praying to the Lord in a very audible way. And his prayer begins like this. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. So in this first section, he's praying for himself and he's praying, it has to do with glory, which is one of those words we don't really, it doesn't really sit well with us. But I think what I want us to see in this is that as Jesus is praying for his glory, what he's actually praying for is to complete God the Father's purposes. He's praying, as you see there in verse 4, to finish what God has called him to do, to finish the work, to complete and finish the work of the cross. Jesus' glory is bound up in death on a cross. 
Jesus goes on to then pray for his disciples in verse 6 and following. He's praying for those who are in the room, and he prays, God the Father, keep these disciples of mine, protect them that they might persevere. And he also prays for their unity, that they might be one, even as the Father and the Son are one. And then lastly, after he's prayed for himself and for the disciples in the room, he prays for all who in the future would believe in him. In other words, he prays for us. I mean, think about that just for a moment. On the night that he is going to be crucified, on the night that he's going to deal with the most grotesque form of torture, being abandoned by God the Father, he's praying for us. And his prayer for us on that last night, as we read in verse 21, is that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. May they be one. The two themes that we see throughout this final prayer, his final words, are glory and unity. And I think our problem with unity comes down to a problem with glory and that the solution is something like this. Rightly directed glory makes true unity possible. What does glory have to do with good relationships? Well, first thing we need to do is figure out what does glory actually mean. When we think of the word glory, our natural inclination is to think about fame, praise, recognition. The seeking and pursuit of this sort of glory is the reason why our narcissistic culture puts everything up on YouTube. Some of the most idiotic things are done and recorded and put up online for some sense of glory, some sense of, look at me, here I am. Isn't it great? But don't think about glory in terms of fame or praise or recognition. Let's get back to the biblical definition of it. So the Greek word that's used here is doxa, glory, doxology. Behind it is a Hebrew idea, a Jewish idea. The Hebrew root of glory, this idea has to do with a word that that means weight, weightiness, heaviness. Or if we were to kind of play it out a little bit more, significance, something that is significant and weighty, something that is lasting. So as a way to think about this, When I was in high school, one of our favorite places to go sledding was Hannah's Hill. Hannah's Hill is now very nice houses, but when I was a teenager, it was the hill on the corner of Vale Road and Hunter Mill. And whenever it snowed, we would head to Hannah's Hill to go sledding. Now, as we all arrived, the person we wanted to come was Brian, because Brian's father grew up in Nebraska as a farmer. And Brian would bring his tractor inner tube. And the great thing about the tractor inner tube on a big hill like Hannah's Hill was you could put three guys on that inner tube. In fact, you could actually get six guys piled up onto that inner tube. Now, the goal of 650-pound, roughly, teenage boys on an inner tube was not just to go as fast as you could, but it was to find one of your friends who went down on another sled and was unsuspectingly trying to stand up or come up the hill and to use that 900 pounds of moving demolition to ram into that unsuspecting 150-pound friend. 
Now, what happens when 900 pounds of inner tube hits a 150-pound biped? He goes flying. He is upended. You could try all you want to stop that sled, but you're going to get bowled over. The significance, the weightiness, the glory, if you would, of 900 pounds of moving inner tube is always going to move out of its way the 150-pound kid. So our problem is a weight problem, a glory weight problem, a significance problem. Think about it this way and how it plays out in our lives. We want significance. We want glory. We want value. We want to last. We want to be weighty people. But what we do is we seek glory on our own in someone or something, which means we cannot stand it when someone weightier enters the scene. Look, you might be a very talented musician, incredibly good-looking. You might be intelligent and value intellect. You might be the creative one at work. You might be the popular one at school. You might be the friend, the good friend that everyone relies on. But what happens when somebody who is a more talented musician, somebody who you suspect is better looking, somebody whose intellectual prowess seems to be a little better than yours, somebody who enters the workplace and is now the new young creative guy, somebody who's more popular than you, somebody who everyone else seems to be turning to to share their secrets. What happens when they enter the room? What happens is we are crushed. We are jealous. We're competitive. We're deeply anxious about our own worth and value. We feel so small. It doesn't matter that we're better looking or more intelligent or more creative than 99% of the room that one person comes sliding in and knocks us off our feet. I mean, this is what happens with the proverbial mother-in-law. Think about it. For so long, this child has been their source of significance and weightiness, and all of a sudden, somebody else has stolen them, has taken the place and you're knocked off your feet. So do you see how our need of glory breaks down community, gets in the way of relationships? We are always seeking glory in some way. And so we're using people, we're being used by them, we're avoiding others because we want some sense of significance and we want to keep hold of our sense of significance. We're manipulative or guarded. We're defensive or aggressive. All traits that are very good if you're waging war, but not if you're trying to make friends. So who will rescue us from us? Well, Jesus, right? The answer is always Jesus in here. Listen to what Jesus says. He says in verse 22, he prays, he's praying for his disciples. 
He prays that they may become perfectly one. That they may become perfectly one. I pray that they may be one even as we are one, he says in verse 22. That they may be one even as we are one. So in some way, the solution to our glory problem, to being able to love one another with a kind of unity and oneness, is found in Jesus. And one of the first ways that it's described here in our passage is the way that Jesus has unity and oneness with the Father. So let's think about that for a moment. How does Jesus the Son relate to God the Father? What you see is that Jesus continually gives up his independence. The Gospel of John, from John 1 to the end, is Jesus doing nothing apart from the Father. Everything he does is to fulfill the Father's purpose. Jesus lays down his glory to fulfill the Father's will, to seek the Father's glory. So the relationship with God has to do with laying down our glory and seeking the Father's will and seeking his glory. And what is the glory that the Father wanted to accomplish through Jesus? It was the cross. For Jesus, the cross was the means, the vehicle, the instrument of glory. Jesus prays for his glory in John 17, 1 through 5. But he's not praying for fame or recognition or praise. Lord, I pray that everyone will think I'm awesome. His prayer is not for his YouTube video to have a lot of hits. His prayer is to accomplish God's purposes for him. His prayer is that he would be able to go all the way through the cross to the other side. And that the cross would accomplish all that the Father intended. This means, then, that true glory, even for us, is not necessarily winning or succeeding in the way we think about it, or being recognized, or getting to the top of our career or recognition goals. True glory is seeking God's purposes for us. How much weightier and more significant and lasting is living for God's glory rather than our own. But of course, to live for another's glory, to end up giving our lives for others the way Jesus did, we need to be confident that we are significant. We need to know that we are loved. We need to believe in the one who laid down his glory so that we might experience God's glory. You see, the gospel, the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ, the cross itself is significantly and fundamentally behind our ability to love one another. We cannot be one as God the Father and the Son are one without the cross. The cross tells us, the gospel tells us that we are more sinful than we are willing to admit. 
This should humble us. There's no place for being superior if we need a Savior to die for us. But because he died for us, that should give us confidence. That should fill us up because the gospel is not just that you are so sinful you need a Savior. It's God loves you even more than you can dare to imagine. We who were enemies with God have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. And it's from that position of deep and assured love that we begin to view ourselves differently. I'm no longer starving for love or glory, nor am I seeking it on my own. It can enable me to view others differently. You are not a threat to my glory nor a commodity for me to get a hold of it. And since there's no need to seek my own glory because I've found true weightiness, true lastingness, I can maybe even love you just because God does too. But when it comes down to it, what we believe is significant. You can't conjure this up by moral discipline alone because in the end, you will get to a point where people are sinful too, and you don't want to love them anymore. And unless you believe you are loved, unless you believe your significance and glory cannot be stolen because it is in Christ, at some point, people pushing against you will cause you to hold back and not be able to love them or to respond in selfishness. What we believe affects how we live. You see, if I trust God and live for God's glory, I will end up living for you. That's the amazing thing. If I'm living for God's glory, I will actually pour my life out for you. By nature, I'm going to do the opposite of that. I'm going to live my life for me. I will pour my life out for me. Only when I really believe what God has done in Jesus Christ will I begin to live my life for you. So what might this look like if we could actually begin to live this way? What would cross-centered oneness, gospel-driven community look like? Well, on one level, it would look like a church. Let's just take a church like this. It would look like a church or a community of people who are actually committed to one another. The kind of people who say, I am here for you, and I am here for you for the long haul. It's one of the reasons why we do membership in our church. Look, I've had people ask, why should I become a member? And I'm going to give you the straight answer is, membership does not have its privileges in this church. You can run for council and vote for council if you're a member. That's about the only added benefit. But what we're doing in the act of even having membership at all is trying to call people to commitment to one another. To say, I am here for you. Not... I'm here for you for right now until I don't like you anymore. But I'm willing to be here for you even in the bad times and even when you're winning and I'm losing. I am here for you. Our strong independence and unwillingness to commit part of our modern Western way of thinking works against us ever accomplishing deep relationships. In... uh, 
the study gospel and life that we use as a pre-membership class in a way to understand some of the vision and values of our church, Tim Keller quotes from a study that was done by two Boston psychiatrists talking about why groups that we try to get involved in end up failing. And he writes this, this is what was written by these two psychologists. Attending weekly meetings, dropping in and out as one pleases, shopping around for a more satisfactory or appealing group, all of these factors work against the growth of true community. In other words, to have the sort of oneness Jesus is talking about, to have deep community, we have to lose some of our independence with one another. What would it look like to be this sort of gospel-driven community, cross-centered oneness. It looks like a community of people who are not using or used or avoiding people. This sort of community looks like more than tolerating or putting up with people. Love, love is not coexisting. Love is active, sacrificial, committed concern for you, even if I disagree with you. kind of love Jesus is talking about is loving those who can't return the benefit. One way we talk about loving those who can't return the benefit is by caring for the poor, the least in our community. And I think that is very much the case. But you know, another way of loving those who can't return the benefit is loving people who you don't really like that much. It's loving that guy. Now, we can all picture that guy, the sort of person that drives us nuts, but I even want to take it a step further. I think to be one, as the Father is calling us to through Jesus, is to love the sort of person that does not allow us to achieve our significance with them. So think about it this way. If you're the sort of person who values intellect, then loving the person who can't return anything might be actually loving toddlers. Because they actually don't care about your critiques of Nietzsche. They just need somebody to get the snack and to change their diaper. They're not going to make you feel more worthy. And the opposite is also true. If you're the sort of person who's after affection and affirmation, so you love to work with toddlers because they will give it to you, Maybe you need to love the intellectual blowhard who wants to tell you all the things they've solved in this world. It's loving those who can't return the benefit. It's being the sort of community that opens our struggles, our fears, our sins, that gives generously, forgives quickly, bears one another's burdens. This sort of oneness is to be on the same team A friend of ours is a single woman who a few years back was commenting with us about her struggles in singleness and how she just wanted to be married. And what she said was, when it boils down to it, I just want somebody on my team. I want to know that I'm not in this alone. You know, a gospel-driven community, a cross-centered oneness would be the sort of people where the single and the lonely, the married, the those with children, the those who are empty nesters can find a team. People who are in it with you, 
who are cheering for you, who are running out to home plate when you hit a home run and are patting you on the back when you strike out. Regardless of whether there is a marriage or blood relationship, this sort of father-son oneness seems pretty impossible. But we're going to aim that way. And we're going to aim that way because it beats the alternative. I think when we live this way or to the extent that we do, that we surrender our glory and live for God's and therefore live for one another, we will be tasting heaven. You know, I'm not sure exactly what hell is like, but some of the descriptions in the Bible make it sound something like this. Hell may just be me by myself. Me with me, me for me, for eternity. Whereas heaven is open communion with God the Father and with one another forever. So let's begin tasting that even now. Let's pray. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, may we be one as you are one. Reveal our false search for glory and may we believe that the cross is enough and so may we live for your glory and love one another. Amen. Amen. We're going to... Respond a little differently this time. Uh, as Christ laid his glory down for the sake of glorifying the Lord, we're just going to take a time now and set our glory down. And as one, as the, as the body respond, um, I'd invite you, you can sing with us or you can just maybe pray silently. Uh, but we're going to sing the song Prince of Peace and we're going to declare the names and glorify the Lord uh, in unison. So let's respond now. Either feel free to do so silently or sing with us. You are holy. You are holy. You are mighty. You are mighty. You are worthy. You are worthy. Worthy of praise. Worthy of praise. I will Omega, beginning and 
You're my prince of peace 